from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Mm, well, judges are human. It does seem right. People make mistakes. Lawyers make mistakes. The kind of discovery that Gardner and company underwent, I think, is was extraordinary. I'm not sure that there is a precedent for it. He used the magic words to avoid defamation, which are, I believe... Why didn't the Missouri Supreme Court just decide this case? Every armchair quarterback I'm talking to says, yeah, this is eventually going to have to be sorted out by the Missouri Supreme Court. Why does this get kicked back downstairs instead? I'm Sarah Futsky. Former Missouri Governor Eric Greitens has been accused of abusing his kids and knocking down and threatening his former wife. He's now running for Senate, and he suggests that the state's former first lady, Sheena Chestnut Greitens, committed perjury with these allegations. He's also fighting for phone records he believes will show a conspiracy between her and his former campaign manager. Is a judge likely to care? Meanwhile, another Missouri man also running for Congress faces questions about his conduct. State Senator Steve Roberts Jr. previously settled lawsuits with two women who accused him of sexual assault. He says his insurance company settled one lawsuit without his consent. But do insurance companies ever do that? Can they even do that? Well, these are some tricky legal questions. And joining us today are three legal experts who can help us attempt to answer them. Yes, today is our legal roundtable. And joining us now is Bill Freivogel. He is a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, as well as an attorney. Bill Freivogel, welcome. Hi. And we're also joined today by Marianne Sade. She is a partner at Sade Harper Westoff. She's also a nationally recognized labor and employment lawyer who's won verdicts against some big employers. Marianne, welcome back. Great to be here. And last but not least, joining us today is Booker T. Shaw. He's a former justice on the Missouri Court of Appeals and currently a partner at the Thompson Coburn Law Firm. Judge Shaw, welcome. Good afternoon, Sarah. So we will get to the aforementioned tabloid topics in just a moment. But first, some breaking news came down from the Missouri Supreme Court yesterday. They weighed in on the Second Amendment Preservation Act. That's the 2021 state law designed to stop local cops from doing anything to enforce federal gun laws. St. Louis, St. Louis County, and Kansas City sued over the law. They asked for an injunction to stop it from going into law. But the circuit court judge ruled against them. And now the state's highest court has reversed and remanded that decision. Bill Freivogel, get us up to speed. What did the court do in yesterday's ruling? Well, the, the court said that uh, the, municipal, the municipality, St. Louis, St. Louis County, Jackson County, Kansas City, now get to make their case back in the lower court. Uh, back in August, uh, Judge Green had said all of those plaintiffs, those municipalities, had other um, legal forms in which they could make their case. And so 
they were not entitled to what's called a declaratory judgment that the law was unconstitutional. Uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the Missouri Supreme Court yesterday uh, said uh, a party, this is from the court opinion, a party need not face a multiplicity of lawsuits or wait for an enforcement action to be initiated before seeking a declaration of rights. In other mm -hmm. words, the Judge Green was wrong, uh, and they can now go ahead and make the, the municipalities can now go ahead and make their argument that um, that this law violate, uh, violates uh, the Constitution. So, Judge Shaw, I'm always hearing that there's questions of ripeness, and I'm always trying to explain to people, okay, like you might think that this is being allowed to go forward, but they're just waiting until it's ripe. Was that one of the issues here that, that the lower court had to deal with and now the Missouri Supreme Court dealing with in a different way? Well, I guess you could put it that way, Sarah. Uh, basically, the, uh, the trial court decided that these other lawsuits that were pending would allow the plaintiffs to receive some resolution of their constitutional claims. The Supreme Court, in effect, disagreed and so sent it back to the trial court for it to make those determinations. Are you surprised that the Missouri Supreme Court said, hey, no, these other lawsuits, that they don't have to take precedence here? Uh, I can't say that I was surprised by it. Um, this uh, lawsuit, and I have to say the Second Amendment Protection Act, caught the attention of lawyers and judges all over the state because, of course, we are familiar with uh, Marbury versus Madison and Article 4 of the a constitution, and we're just wondering, you know, when the challenge would occur and how it would be resolved. So we'll have to remain in suspense a little while longer. In the meantime, Bill, can they go ahead and uh, try to get an injunction to stop this from being enforced? Oh, that's a good question. You know, whether whether now back in uh, Judge Green's court, whether they can say, you know, as this goes forward, uh, we should have an injunction, uh, you know, that stops enforcement. I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, Judge Shaw, do you know an answer on that? They can certainly seek an injunction again uh, before Judge Green, and I, I suspect that's what they're going to do. Okay, but it'll be up to him to decide once again. Yes. So that leads to one of my great frustrations as somebody who's not involved in the practice of law, but watches all of you do it so well. Why didn't the Missouri Supreme Court just decide this case? Every armchair quarterback I'm talking to says, yeah, this is eventually going to have to be sorted out by the Missouri Supreme Court. Why does this get kicked back downstairs instead? Well, typically, particularly in, in the early stages like this, when there is a judgment uh, rendered by the trial court on the pleadings, there simply is not a sufficient factual and legal record made at the trial court level. So it's not surprising. I mean, I know a lot of us tend to think, oh, they're just punting and, and avoiding the ultimate resolution of the issue. But uh, typically the appellate courts, when they feel there is not a sufficient uh, legal or factual record made at the trial court, they'll send it back. Bill, do you think this will ultimately end up not just with the Missouri Supreme Court, this could end up with the U.S. Supreme Court? We've got many steps ahead on this thing, potentially. Well, yeah, I, this issue could go to the Missouri, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, I mean, you know, you know, there's also the, the, the lawsuit that the federal government has, the Justice Department has filed uh, against this. Against the same uh, state the law. same statute saying it violates the supremacy clause. Um, I'm just, I was just trying to parse out in my head whether or not, uh, you know, since these are all state plaintiffs, could it go to the U.S. Supreme Court? But I think that if, if the uh, state of Missouri lost in the Missouri 
Supreme Court, uh, it would probably be based on an interpretation of the federal constitution, and that certainly could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we may have a long road ahead. Uh, yes. You guys, I hate that answer. <laughs> All right, let's talk about something else. It was Attorney General Eric Schmidt who represented the state of Missouri in the Second Amendment Preservation Act case that the Missouri Supreme Court dealt a, a loss to his office. Well, he also made headlines in this past month over his actions on the notorious duck boat incident that killed 17 people in 2018 Branson. Now, in December, a Stone County judge ruled that a local prosecutor did not have enough evidence to sustain criminal cases against three duck boat employees who'd been charged for their roles in these deaths. The, the local judge dismissed the charges. Um, but earlier this month, Attorney General Eric Schmidt swooped in and he brought 63 counts against the same three men. Marianne Sade, can he just do that? Yes, he can. That's the short answer. Now, the question of why is a whole different question. There's no indication, at least so far, that there's new evidence, additional evidence. Um, but yes, he can do that. Um, you know, a lot of people think that this might be a question of double jeopardy, for instance. But double jeopardy only uh, applies in situations where there's been a trial mm. on the merits of a claim. There wasn't any trial here. This was a uh, legal decision saying that, um, that there just wasn't any legal basis given the evidence in the case to move forward with it. So, you know, yeah, this can happen. And in fact, the Stone County prosecutor could refile it um, if, if they thought it needed to be refiled. Yeah. And so is a judge likely to look differently at a case that's coming from the attorney general versus a local prosecutor? I, I wonder if it, I suppose it all comes down to the strength of this case. But do we think that Eric Schmidt knows something that this local prosecutor doesn't? Bill, what's your take? Well, I, I doubt that he knows something that, uh, that, that the local prosecutor doesn't. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, when, it's, when the state attorney general says, hey, this is really important and you should take another look, I would hope that a judge would pay, would pay attention. I, I have noticed, though, that even one of uh, uh, Attorney General Schmidt's fellow Republicans uh, in southwest Missouri has tried to cut his budget because uh, he's tired of all of the litigation that the attorney general is involved in, that, that relating to the lawsuits against school districts, not to this case. Mm -hmm. But um, he's, he is a very litigious attorney general. Yeah, and, and this does seem to be a way to get some headlines. Uh, how would a judge deal with that if, if the perception is, you know, I've already dealt with this case. Let's say it goes back to the same judge. I've already dealt with this case. Somebody else is coming in to get their name in the paper. Is that something a judge cares about? Mm, well, judges are human. Uh, uh, and, and, of course, you can't discount the fact that the judge may be looking at this sideways. Uh, and particularly, as Bill said, if there's nothing new here, then why do you think I'm going to change my mind just because you brought the lawsuit now? So I think um, we just may just end up with the same result. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to jump in and remind all of us that uh, Attorney General Schmidt wants to be our next U.S. senator. And, you know, 
I've noticed he's been filing a lot of lawsuits lately. That's an observation uh, from Marianne there that, as, as Bill noted, there has also been some lawmakers picking up on, on the, the pace of his office. He's certainly staying busy. Let's talk about a prosecutor a little bit closer to home. Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, she may have dodged a bullet in this past month. Uh, Gardner's critics have long been convinced that she could lose her license to practice law over her handling of the prosecution of former Governor Eric Greitens. Well, Kim Gardner has now reached an agreement with the state's chief disciplinary counsel that her actions were not intentional, that anything she did wrong was was simply by accident. She will likely receive a reprimand from the state's three-judge panel, which is adjudicating her case uh, now that she has the chief disciplinary counsel on board. Marianne, does this feel like just resolution? It does to me. I mean, look, I'm not saying that Kim Gardner's perfect, but there's been a lot of piling on prosecutor Kim Gardner ever since she was elected. So, I, you know, it does seem right. People make mistakes. Lawyers make mistakes. Look, I make mistakes. Um, and a particularly in a really heated public situation where things are happening every day, it's really easy to make a mistake. And she was up against a lot of really top lawyers coming in more aggressively on this case than one is ever used to um, on, you know, most of the low-level type matters that, that people are dealing with. On the other hand, there were some some serious allegations here withholding things in discovery. Bill, any thoughts on this resolution? Well, I generally agree with uh, Marianne. Uh, and and I, I noticed that the disciplinary, uh, dis- the chief disciplinary officer's uh, Proposed uh, decision said that nothing affected the. Uh, they they weren't criticizing uh, the charges against uh, the the then governor uh, or or the you know process that led to them. Uh, and I also noticed that Kim Gardner said acknowledged that it was a serious issue, but uh, as Marianne says that the, the and as you say that. The kind of uh, discovery that uh, that that Gardner and company underwent, I think, is was extraordinary. I'm not sure that there is a precedent for it, uh, and uh, so so I think that that's something to to pay attention to. You know, a case that the, the disciplinary council has got by presumably has before him is the complaint. Speaking of our attorney general, uh, of his uh, joining in that lawsuit back in December 2016 and lining up all the Republican attorneys general to say that the the electoral votes of all of of four states should be thrown out uh, because in 2020 in, 20, in 2020 yes and that that resulted in a complaint that's presumably pending. Also, I'll be interested in seeing how that turns out. Judge, I'd love to give you the final word on uh, these matters involving the Office of Disciplinary Counsel. Any thoughts on on how this has shaken out? Um, You know, I'm not really surprised, Sarah, in in the way it's resolved because uh, when the uh, circuit attorney admitted the oversight and and the recommendation was made as it was, then um, I thought, well, this speculation that she was going to be removed from office or disbarred, I thought, was a bit over the top. 
Now, the rumor mill did get pretty wild on this one. It's interesting to see just how non-dramatically uh, this may all be settled. Well, look, we are talking to our legal roundtable today. That is former Missouri Appellate Court Judge Booker T. Shaw. We're also joined by Mary Ann Sade and Bill Freivogel. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this roundtable discussion. We're going to talk about two legal settlements made by uh, State Senator Steve Roberts, who is now vying for Congress. He settled with two women who accused him of sexual assault. We'll discuss what these settlements show us and what that could mean. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today is our legal roundtable, and we're going to talk about uh, State Senator Steve Roberts Jr. He is the scion of a prominent Democratic family. He is now running for Congresswoman Cori Bush's seat. He has also previously been accused of sexual assault by two St. Louis women. Uh, neither resulted in any sort of criminal charges. Now, one of those women is the late Cora Faith Walker. She was a fellow state representative when she alleged rape. But prosecutors didn't find enough to bring charges here, and Robert sued her for defamation. Now, Cora Faith Walker recently died. We should note the medical examiner just released his report. He found that it was a heart condition. She was just 37 years old, and her supporters have brought up these claims after her passing. Well, he then produced the settlement agreement of his defamation lawsuit against her. So this was a confidential settlement. She has now, of course, passed away. Would he be automatically released from that confidentiality in the event of her death? Judge Shaw, any thoughts on that? Well, I've not seen the exact agreement. I've, I've seen some references to it and quotes mm -hmm. from it in, in the news stories, but no. These agreements go on after death in yes. general. Yes. Is, is that typical that, that um, you know, if I'm signing something in life saying you can't talk about this, I can hold you to that even if, even if you pass away, Marianne? Yeah. I mean, I think Cora Faith Walker's estate may have a claim against Steve Roberts. Now, do they want to bring that claim and to what end, um, you know, do they want to relitigate that whole thing? I, I kind of doubt it. But, yeah, I think technically they have a claim. Now, he is saying that she violated their agreement because she made public statements about this rape allegation. And this settlement was, was really interesting to read. I guess most of us aren't usually privy to settlements. So maybe for lawyers, this is old hat. But according to this settlement, she was prohibited from, quote, holding herself out to be or making any public comment to the effect that she is a victim of sexual assault, sexual violence, or rape unless she specifically identifies the alleged perpetrator and said perpetrator is clearly identified as not being Roberts. This agreement also banned her from commenting publicly that she was a member of the Me Too movement or any similar group or calling herself a survivor, again, unless she specifically states the basis for claiming this had nothing to do with him, and it blocked her from using using the allegation as a reason for supporting or sponsoring any legislation. Are these unusual terms here, Bill? <laughs> 
Well, I have I haven't seen the the whole agreement either. Uh, they seemed unusual to me, but to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of these these agreements. You know, we yeah. we uh, journalists sort of hate these agreements because they keep people's mouths shut. It's true. It's just a terrible <laughs> thing. Why doesn't everyone We're be forced to talk to us? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he has sort of offered this settlement. He's the one who went public sharing this settlement, and he seemed to do it in the spirit of, of thinking that this this vindicated him. And part of it is that no money changed hands. Does that point to the fact? that she didn't have a particularly strong case in her counterclaim here. You know, I just don't know what considerations came into play in terms of why the agreement was the way that it was. And, uh, you know, I do deal with them a fair amount, and these terms are very unusual. But I I don't know why. And it it could very well be, as uh, Marianne pointed out, that she just wanted to be done with it, the stress of litigating this or messing around with it, and she wanted to just close the book on it, you know, I don't know. Does this suggest, I don't want to say at gunpoint, but, uh, you know, the, the figurative gunpoint, somebody that would agree to these kind of terms that they were maybe over a barrel a bit or not necessarily? Not necessarily. You know, I represent a lot of people who, and this is a little different, this is not at work, this is something else, but I represent a lot of people who have been sexually harassed, some people who've been assaulted, and, you know, these are terrible terribly difficult claims to bring. First of all, it's always, almost always, he said, she said. Um, So that makes it really hard. And, you know, Cora Faith was, I have to say, she's brilliant. She was a brilliant woman. And uh, the loss of her to this community has been really unfortunate. But, you know, she was moving on at that point to uh, a new job, to new work. She wasn't going to be in the legislature anymore. So maybe she just, you know, we're all speculating. Maybe she just wanted an end to it. And frankly, he didn't want money from her. He just wanted her to stop talking. Yeah. And she So did. it worked. <laughs> yeah. She stopped talking. I wonder whether whether this is working for Roberts. I mean, is this oh, really yeah. is this really what he wants to be talking about in trying to uh, yeah, I mean, run for office? Anytime you see a headline of congressional <laughs> candidate accused of sexual assault by two women, even if the next part of that headline is claims vindication, that's not what we would call a good headline. Yeah. And that actually leads to the second part of this. So after he made this agreement with her public, that led to his second accuser deciding to go public with her settlement with Steve Roberts. Amy Harms was a law student when Roberts allegedly uh, groped her at a bar. She later sued. And because she's now come forward with this confidential settlement, we now know that she got a $100,000 settlement. He says this was from his insurance company. His spokesman says the settlement was made against his wishes. You said you've handled a, a number of these. Does that ring true? Well, you know, if the insurance company is obligated to pay any judgment that may have happened here, it can happen. They can decide, you know what, we got to settle this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they are the ones who are on the hook if, if that was their ultimate decision. So uh, it can happen. Is that your experience as well, Mary? Well, you know, it's interesting because I actually checked this out with, with a partner of mine because I only deal with employment claims and and uh, there is employment practices liability insurance and interestingly enough in that area of um, insurance many of the policies include what's called a consent to settle 
um, so that, in fact, you know, the insurance company can't settle um, unless the uh, person who is insured agrees to it. So now, the company would not want the insurance company to settle without it, right? Basically, exactly. But in in inquiring a bit, apparently these policies are all over the place. It really depends on what the policy says, and we don't know what the policy said in this case. I think they said it was like umbrella insurance, which is kind of a catch-all. So I'm glad you brought this up because I have also heard some people saying, why would he even have a policy that protects him against sexual assault? Does this suggest he knew he'd be out there getting these kind of claims? How would an umbrella policy play into this? This, this would cover anything. So people who have substantial assets often have these umbrella policies that sort of cover odd things that are not covered by the usual kinds of insurance you have. Now, I don't know what his policy said. Um, You know, the the interesting thing is that, you know, sexual assault is, is not negligence. I mean, it's intentional conduct. So Having insurance that covers that? I don't know. I'm not an insurance person. I found an insurance publication that covered this story because I am just so nosy that way. And in their reporting, they said, the insurance company said it did not cover expenses connected to sexual molestation or personal injuries resulting from criminal or intentional acts. Quote, the policy specifically excludes coverage for sexual molestation and expected or intended injury by an insured, the letter said. In light of these exclusions, we see no coverage under your policies for the claims being alleged. He's pointing to that as saying vindication. They're basically saying, in his words, because he wasn't guilty of doing this, that's why the policy kicked in. For those of you who have to deal with insurance carriers, does that ring true? Hmm. It gets complicated, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Because, I mean, there are aspects of this, such as dismissal of charges and that kind of thing, to which you would have to agree to dismiss those with with your attorney. So um, because we don't have the policy, because we don't have all the details, and because we are just getting bits and pieces of the story from the uh, news reports and from what uh, the Roberts uh, uh, candidate is saying and from what the accusers are saying, we don't really have all of the information. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to think about all these issues, but it is a lot of speculation. And as Bill says, not good speculation when it comes to Steve Roberts attempting to to beat Cori Bush. I'm sure he'd rather we were talking about his record. Um, But, hey, he put this out there. We have to do this, right? Um, (laughs) Let's talk about, I'm going to use that same excuse, to talk about former Missouri Governor Eric Greitens. Uh, Steve Roberts is not the only congressional candidate in Missouri facing some ugly allegations. Uh, Greitens saw an affidavit filed by his ex-wife get widespread media coverage in this past month. They are locked in a child custody case. She wants it moved from Missouri to Texas. She filed an affidavit in support of that move and made allegations of abuse. These are very serious allegations. Marianne, how are they connected to moving the case to Texas? I'm not sure. Honestly, I I don't quite understand how the allegations made in the affidavit are connected to the the moving of the case to Texas, I am frankly amazed that Eric Greitens wants to keep this case in Missouri. But, you know, that's just me. I I mean, I'm flabbergasted by it, honestly, Um, because all that means is that it's just going to keep 
being stirred up here. Um, and they are very serious allegations. So I don't I mean, know. The only way in which I can see a, a, a connection between the affidavit and and whether the case is in Missouri or Texas is that one of the things that I think she claims is that um, is that Greitens, you know, boasted and indeed had a lot of support from law enforcement officials and threatened uh, not only to try to get her job canceled in Texas, but also threatened to keep her and her uh, children from leaving the state, you know, from by by sending uh, by seeing that law enforcement officials, I believe she said, went to the airport. Hmm. So, you know, that that would seem to somewhat of a connection, you know, in in that why should she have to come back to Missouri where Greitens claims to have all of this power yeah. uh, when uh, in in dealing with this case? So this affidavit came out, it, it basically broke in the Washington Post, and it was only at that point that his attorney asked a judge to block the affidavit from public view, saying open access could have caused irreparable harm to his reputation and his candidacy. Judge Shaw, I'm wondering if he maybe should have raised that earlier. Like, why was this not sealed from the get-go? Uh, this is the part that I don't understand. I mean, it's the kind of uh, litigation where whenever there's a custody battle, there's going to be, uh, despite the parent's best interest, uh, concern for the best interest of the child, they're going to be explosive allegations one way or the other. So I don't get that. And I'm surprised that uh, they haven't asked for it. And perhaps the judge may at this point uh, decide to just seal everything herself because of these these young kids yes yeah so this is the other interesting wrinkle in this uh, Eric Greitens attorneys are now subpoenaing phone records for his former campaign manager they think that this guy named Austin Chambers is working with Greitens's ex-wife and so they're saying that they need these phone records to prove this conspiracy Greitens lawyer says quote there's arguably no more heinous accusation than that of child abuse how Sheena Greitens wrapped herself in this twisted web and who may have helped her in this weaving is subject to pending discovery. The judge says he's going to decide whether or not they can look at these phone records. Greitens' lawyer has proposed that a special master review these records without redaction. A special <laughs> master in a child custody case. Bill, have you ever heard of this? <laughs> well, I, I don't think so. But uh, I, I think if I were the judge, I'd think that was a very bad idea. Uh, I, I mean, I just – and, you know, what uh, Helen Wade, I guess, said, who's a, who's Sheena Greitens' lawyer, said it does seem like a, a fishing expedition on his part. I mean, this conspiracy that's alleged by Greitens and, and his attorney is, you know, not only uh, – also involves uh, Mitch McConnell and, and uh, Carl, Carl Rove. Rove. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, are we really going to get into all of that? Uh, judge Shaw, if a, if a judge wanted to stop this and, and sort of sees this as, okay, this is becoming a circus. We're dragging in these top Republican operatives, people's phone records. This is not what I want in my courtroom for a child custody case. Would he have good grounds to just say, no, you can't do that? Well, the judge has a lot of options there. And, uh, I, you know, there is a possibility of appointing a special master or the judge herself could simply um, take a look at the records herself. Uh, but I think probably uh, the judge may be inclined to just seal everything and stop all of this circus from going on. I think that's probably the best first step.
So there's one other wrinkle in this. This case is just, it, it needs to be a book, probably a trashy uh, dime store book that one reads at an airport. But Eric Greitens' attorney, Gary Stamper, wrote that Sheena Greitens had an obligation to tell the court about domestic abuse before the divorce was final, yet she did not. All these things predate uh, this divorce being final. Uh, she claims to have told the court-appointed mediator, uh, this attorney wrote, but if she'd done that, the mediator would have, by law, been required to report this abuse to the state's children division. And so here's a quote from, again, Greitens' lawyer. If you believe her now, you believe that she committed the crime of perjury in 2020 and the crime of failing to report abuse in 2019. <laughs> if you believe her then, you believe her guilty of perjury now and of falsely accusing the children's father and the mediator of crimes today. Marianne, your response to that? Well, you know, I, I, I found this fascinating because there is a huge difference between lying under oath, which is perjury, and just not volunteering everything in the world you know about what's gone on in your marriage and your children's lives and in your life. I mean, if this is perjury, then, you know, there's a lot of it going on in every courtroom in America because, you know, people do not necessarily want to uh, discuss these issues if they can resolve them. On the issue of this mandated reporter, I actually looked this up this morning because I was interested. Did the court appointed mediator have an obligation to report this? And I would say no. Hmm. Um, the statute in question lists a lot of different categories of um, people in positions who have an obligation to uh, report child abuse, but and and there's a sort of a catch-all of people who are certified or licensed. There's no license to be a mediator. Interesting. You, know, um, you don't have to get a certification to mediate lawsuits. So you know, I mean, depending on what the person's underlying profession is, it just doesn't seem likely. Plus, how would mediation work? If mediators have to report all the bad stuff they've heard in the middle of trying to resolve a case, I mean, it's hard to picture. Marianne, you make some good points here, and I think this kind of brings it back to as much as there's, again, tabloid aspects of this. You know, there's there's two little boys mm. at the center of this thing, and in some ways this is just the most heartbreaking case kind of makes you hope that, uh, you know, contrary to our selfish interest in being curious about what happens here, you can see why Judge Shaw thinks this is one that maybe should be sealed now. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you look at the, you know, I clicked on the links to look at the Real Clear Politics polls. I mean, he's still hanging in there. Yeah. As we said, running for Senate. We'll see if this is something that the Missouri voters care about. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is attorney Bill Freivogel. We're also joined by Mary Ann Sade and uh, Booker T. Shaw. We do need to take a quick break, but we will continue digging into all sorts of legal matters with this roundtable when we come back. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com.
Welcome back. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. There are so many interesting legal matters in the news, so we're just going to dive in. Uh, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled last week on a case out of St. Louis. This ruling involved a St. Louis County drug trafficker named Robert Hill. He was charged with conspiracy to distribute heroin and cocaine in 2017. And at trial in federal court, the prosecutors struck two black jurors. The defense then issued what's called a Batson challenge, but the defense was overruled. Hill ended up losing that case. He appealed to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Bill Freivogel, what did they end up finding here in this decision? Well, they they ended up, uh, thanks a lot for asking me that question. Uh, the, the, you can punt. You can punt. I, re I read the decision, and I know a lot about Batson, but boy, is this complicated. Uh, and they, they ended up uh, ruling uh, against the defendant. Uh, and Basically and saying these two jurors, they didn't have to be on this jury. They didn't have to be on this jury, right? And uh, and there there was a dissent. I mean, the issue goes so. There's like this this several part test uh, under Batson. You know, first of all, a person making a Batson claim. The Batson claim being that a juror was struck because he was black, uh, or I guess it could even be because they were white under dif different circumstances. Or if they were a woman, or is it always race-related? I don't know if Batson applies to women. No, okay. I don't think. Uh, so, so, so because a, a, a lot of, over the history of the United States, a lot of uh, black jurors have been struck in cases involving black defendants, the, the Supreme Court issued the Batson decision way back in the 1980s. And I should cut in here. Uh, this could officially be, according to our producers, on the basis of sex, race, ethnicity, or religion. So well, no. Yeah. Cool. Okay. But it does, as can, Bill can, says. It can is... the producer finish answering the question? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Bring him in here. <laughs> He'd like that a little too much. <laughs> in the in the in the nineteen, I think Batson goes back to about nineteen eighty six, and maybe the producer can check me on that too. But the Supreme Court said, and I think Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion that uh, that that where where jurors were struck on the basis of race, that that was unconstitutional. And so there are these Batson challenges when black jurors, often especially when black jurors, are struck. And uh, and then there, there's like a several part test. And first of all, the person claiming that the strike was was racially motivated has to make a prima facie case that that was true. In in this particular instance, uh, this case we're talking about, the prima facie case, uh, the court said, had not been made. Mm -hmm. Now the second the second step is then the go the government the prosecutor has to put forward a race neutral. Uh, justification for having struck the juror. So the question was, if there's hasn't been a prime of, if they haven't met the first step of this, the prima facie case, does the government uh, have to come up with this race neutral explanation? And basically, the majority said no. The government doesn't have to do that and, if, and, if and the, the defendant doesn't follow the that step. Said he, didn't really agree with that. I think I've got it right. So that that strikes me as a, a fair summary of this case. Um, Judge Shaw, one of the weird wrinkles in this is this now convicted drug trafficker ended up representing himself in this case. And I know judges love it when defendants do that. You can no, <laughs> contradict me on don't. that. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't even imagine if uh, that this guy, you know, he's trying to ably cover his own defense here. How would he know that he can't just say this is unfair? He has to make this prima facie case. 
Yeah, yeah. When I saw that it was a pro se defendant, I thought, well, this is going nowhere. Uh, but, you know, when you look at those portions of the transcript that are uh, reflected in the opinion, he does a pretty decent job. But I have to say, I felt, even though when you read the decision, as Bill said, it gets complicated in the way the court engaged in the analysis, as well as the dissenting, uh, in part, opinion that was written. But I tell you, when I looked at it and I saw pro se defendant, and it was Judge Ronnie White, uh, who is a highly esteemed judge uh, in our U.S. District Court, I, I knew off the top, this isn't going anywhere. Yet, you know, we hear so much about, particularly in federal court, this was a huge issue when it came to the beating of the undercover black St. Louis officer, um, you know, who was trying to, to hold his, his uh, assaulters, his fellow officers, accountable in federal court. And there was just a lot of discussion about how so many of these juries do not have black representation on them. Is the Batson standard good enough if you can just go ahead and, and strike black jurors without really having much of a reason? And you've got some poor pro se defendant there trying to come up with a, an argument saying, hey, I want to be judged by a jury of my actual peers. So one of the underlying problems here is that in federal court, the jury pool tends to be much less diverse than in state court. So you're going to end up starting with a group that is predominantly white, okay? And the other thing is that I'm a person whose job is to prove uh, bias, race, sex, religion, whatever. And I just want to say that for me, as a lawyer who does it all the time, I know how difficult that is. So this is a very difficult standard for a, a pro se person to meet or, or a, you know, a lawyer who does yeah. what I do. Um, and you're always looking for patterns. So when all the black people get struck, then you say, ah, that's in challenge. The problem usually comes, in my experience, with smart uh, prosecutors who will have a reason, always a race-neutral reason for why they struck somebody. And you're not going to get to have a whole trial about this. You know, this yeah. all happens in the in the context of jury selection. So I personally think the Batson standard is really hard to meet. And I think that it is no surprise that it rarely works. Well, you know, let, let me just add this, too. We, we have to keep in mind that Judge Ronnie White is an African-American judge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the judge ultimately is the gatekeeper. And, and as the opinion points out, even though the, the pro se defendant here did not initially make the prima facie showing, uh, Judge White uh, was waiting for the prosecutor to give some race-neutral reason. Now, ultimately, like as Mary Ann says, I mean, prosecutors or any lawyer who is intent on doing the wrong thing can come up with reasons such as, well, I didn't like the way he or she looked at me. That's considered a valid reason. It could very well be. It could very well be. So, um, you know, you know, this kind of body language can sometimes be used as a reason, as a race-neutral reason why an individual juror may have, have been uh, chosen or, or pulled off. I often find that what happens is the opposing counsel says, well, no, it wasn't his race. It was the way he answered question X 
or it was really the way he she answered question why and in any jury selection there's been a lot of questions asked so there's always something <laughs> yeah that's my take on it there's always something the like, one thing i can say for certain about this opinion is that uh, the the standard is uh, the the interpretation of the standard is all over the map throughout the country. I mean, the, there's some some I think it was even the majority opinion. They said if there's a if if, if there if there's an uh, you know a, a standard for interpreting, or maybe there's no standard for interpreting. <laughs> wow, <laughs> there's, there's an aside there that that sort of you know points to the confusion that. Exists and, and Judge Shaw, it sounds like in this case you don't have reservations about this. You you trust this judge. This was a defendant who didn't really know what he was doing as his own counsel, but but you feel like this was likely handed appropriately. Do you have bigger picture concerns that Batson is maybe not the standard we need, or do you think this is this is the standard we have and it's good enough? Well, you know, it's it's been a while since I've been in the trial court, particularly on these criminal matters, and, you know, you're always concerned about this. Yes, I am completely satisfied with what happened in this case, and I'm sure that in this instance, of course, I do know the judge, and I know that he probably would have given a pro se defendant every consideration mm-hmm. and actually probably bent over backwards to try to help him. But, you know, um, we can always do better. And I don't have any particular suggestions for you today, but uh, give me some time. Yeah, it does seem like a hard one to fix, and maybe part of this is where all of this is coming down, but how interesting. So I'm going to go back to a tabloid-style topic here in our final five minutes. Uh, A couple owns a floating marina in Grafton, Illinois. This is called The Harbor. And they allege that they were defamed by Grafton ex-mayor on a CNBC reality show called The Prophet. And they are suing uh, former Mayor Rick Eberlin. And the host of this show, Marcus Limonis, and CNBC's parent company, they allege defamation, slander, and bribery. They say the former mayor falsely claimed on this TV show that they owed the city of Grafton $250,000 in back taxes and that that smear cost them multiple interested buyers. So kind of a strange little case. Uh, reality TV comes to Grafton, and now these these owners are, are hurt by what happened there. Marianne, do you think they have money? Much of a defamation claim here. Well, you know, it was interesting because when you read the actual statements that were made, I don't know. Defamation is really hard. I mean, I have been a lawyer for 40 years, and I have situations often where an employee comes to me and says, this is what somebody said about me. So I've, I've been there, and these are hard claims. It was interesting that when you read the actual statement, um, he never named these folks. He referred to them as these folks. Yeah. And the other thing that was interesting was that he used the magic words to avoid defamation, which are, I believe. And so obviously um, his lawyer will be claiming that this was opinion testimony rather than a straight out falsehood. I don't know where this is going to go. You know, the other, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's an interesting case. And this Marcus Limonis, who's the host of this show, you know, after the former mayor referred to them as, as these, these, what did he say? These people, these, these folks, um, he did not seek comment from them. Now, as a journalist, I'd have to do that. But we're talking about reality TV show. It's a different animal. Judge Shaw, what do you make of this whole mess? 
Well, as, as you led with, Sarah, it's like uh, has soap opera elements to it for sure. But I agree with Marianne. When you look at the actual statements that were made, I'm thinking, how are they ever going to make a case, you know, against the former mayor or against the talk show host? I mean, the statements that were actually made, one, it was opinion. And the other one, it's not as if the guy took a particular position. He just gave a general proposition about what he would like to see done in the county. So I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be a difficult case. Difficult case. It's interesting. I just found out through researching this that this Marcus Lemonis is facing a ton of lawsuits from different businesses. It seems like a whole different controversy <laughs> going on there. But as far as Grafton goes, this is defamation. Bill Freivogel, I'm going to slip in one last topic here that I know is of great interest to you. <laughs> Yesterday, St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones was on this show, and she addressed criticism of her city councilor, Sheena Hamilton. The city is defending lawsuits from many of the 100 plus people who were swept up in mass arrests during protests against police brutality. This was back in 2017. Well, as Mayor Jones and I talked about, she herself marched in those protests, although not as late at night to get swept up in these mass arrests. And her chief of staff had indicated to Bill Freivogel that this era of hardball was over in the city's defense of, of these kind of lawsuits. So far, under City Councilor Sheena Hamilton, the city has zealously defended these cases. And here's what Mayor Jones told me about that yesterday. We inherited a lot of things, uh, and that's what happens when you take on, you know, take on running for mayor. You inherit the the unfinished business of the prior administration, and so uh, this is one of the unfortunate things that we un- inherited that we have to try to fix as best as we can. Is the mandate for the city councilor to defend the city aggressively? That the city has to pay attention to that bottom line. I mean, the 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 mandate for the city councilor is to, I would say, you know, work. Uh, do the best with with what she has inherited. Um, and this is one of those unfortunate lawsuits that she has inherited. So we're trying to find the best outcome that we can. And that is Mayor Jones on this show yesterday discussing a matter that we have talked about quite a bit on this panel, um, as well as Bill independently reporting on. Bill, we have about a minute left. What, what do you make of all that? Well, I, I would guess that her critics would not be very satisfied with that, with that do the best you can with what you've inherited. Because, I mean, we're talking here about police practice, about defending Police practices that you know that range from you know qualified immunity, which is you know basically the law has to be crystal clear. The Supreme Court has to have stated it. That range from that to uh, no-knock raids uh, that that are defective to uh, six officers piling on to a person in the city holdover, who then uh, while he's bound hand and foot, and who then expires. Uh, I mean we're. We're talking about very serious allegations of, of police wrongdoing, and, and the city has in the past taken the position in favor of defending the police action, and they continue to do it under uh, Mayor Jones, even though that's what all those protests in the streets were about. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. And, you know, at this point, this is all stuff that happened under the Cruson administration. It's, as she said, she inherited this case, but it is interesting to watch it play out. Bill Freivogel, thank you for joining us today. Bill is a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and uh, former Judge Booker T. Shaw, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, sir. And Judge Shaw is a partner at Thompson Coburn, and also Marianne Sade, thank you for joining us. Always fun to be here. Thank you. And Marianne is a partner at Sade Harper Westoff.
Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.